If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. It's time to jump in the time machine. Because on today's episode, we're heading back to the rowdy heart of 19th century London. Our guide through these noisy, smelly, action-packed streets is the historian Oscar Jensen. His new book, Vagabonds, tells the story of the colourful individuals who lived and worked in the streets of the Victorian and Georgian capital. Thank you so much for joining me. Your new book, Vagabonds, it looks at life on the streets of 19th century London. So if me and you, we stepped out of a time machine, slap bang into the middle of this world, what might we encounter? Uh, Give us a sense of some of the smells, the sights, the sounds of the streets of London at this time. I think firstly, one of us has got to grab the other one by the hand and pull them out of the middle of that street, depending where it is. It's a dangerous thing in 19th century London. This is a century where the start of it, it's the Georgian period. By the end of it, it's the late Victorian. There's a lot of change when we're thinking about what's in this street in terms of the traffic above all. But throughout, it is busy, it is noisy, it is smelly, it is filthy. The streets change a lot. Um, The surfaces that we're walking on, this might alter a lot. If we're dropping in at the start of this period, it's mostly just going to be dust and sand and dirt beneath our feet. We're going to be squelching in in mud. If we're very lucky, there's a crossing sweeper nearby who is clearing the way for us. We think about someone sweeping a crossing, we think quite a slow, lazy activity. People might have said that at the time. But seriously, some of these thoroughfares, it's like digging a trench and keeping it clear. It's just mud and filth and rubbish packed up everywhere. And you've got to get a sort of a clear way to go through. Later on, the experiment, we might be walking on wood for a bit, and which gets very slippy in the winter. And so we might be going skidding over at any given point. We might have cobbles. We might have decent tarmacadam if we're lucky later on. Horses are the ones to worry about really here. As a horse, if it comes off cobbles onto one of these other surfaces, it goes crazy. It hates that change underfoot. You have all sorts of accidents. So watch out for any horses going by, especially 
carrying a cart, maybe having one of the the early um, yeah handsome cabs or something like that, because there are a lot of accidents, people getting mangled and maimed all the time. If we're getting over to the side of the road, yes, something might be chucked on our heads, but it's less of a danger than in the Elizabethan period. We've probably got a gutter underneath us to step over instead. If you want to look at one of the pictures people paint of this sort of period, you won't see half this stuff. They cut it all out. They have picturesque people, have gleaming pavements, that sort of thing. It's not the case. And your book is all about the people that lived on these streets. Who were some of the people that you might encounter on the streets of 19th century London? The streets are full, above all, with people doing things, being busy. You and I were probably going to be walking from A to B in the street. We've got somewhere to get to. The people that we might meet if we took our time are not pedestrians. They are workers. So let's see. We might have John James Beezer, a small boy, age seven, um, lost the sight in one eye. In the 1820s, he's trying to sell you hot cross buns. He's meant to be doing this by shouting loudly the song we know, sort of hot cross buns, hot cross buns, one a penny, two a penny, hot cross buns. But he's really ashamed to do this, so he's actually whispering hot cross buns. So we've got to really keep our eyes and ears open for him if we want to buy. If we're meeting people by choice, we could be coming across people who don't want to be met, who are going about their own business, but we're not going to have any problems because everywhere someone's going to be trying to get our attention. We look like we might have some something in our pocket. So we might have um, a busker, a ballad singer. Someone is going to try and sell us something on every street we get to. And the point here is these people, they're not going anywhere. They're living there. They're working there. The street is not this single conduit to get from A to B. It is somewhere to spend the whole day in. And so we've can take our time. We can loiter. We can get our we can get our meal there. Someone can sell us a, a pie, uh, some watercress, something like that. So your book it basically tries to uncover the story of these lives from the voices of the people who who lived in these streets. What you've got to do in order to do that is wade through a lot of misconception and a lot of um, middle class portrayals of Victorian London. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about what we would probably call? quote, Dickensian London that have come down to us through time. Dickensian will do. Dickens himself is is better than some others because he has had a tiny bit of experience with this kind of thing. And above all, he has some compassion as a writer. This is in short supply. Maybe the single biggest misconception we get is this idea, which is centuries old, of people who are sturdy beggars. The idea that someone in the street is out to con us. Um, people are up to no good because they're in the street. You see someone in rags, you see someone begging. We have it today. Um, we are inculcated from childhood. People say to us, or oh, you give them money, they're going to go and buy drugs. In some cases, yes, this may be true. But what you're hearing there is something people are saying for centuries, and it's about distrust. It's about fear. It's about loathing. And it's about not seeing that person as a real person equal to you. So if someone is apparently blind and they're begging, are they shamming? And there are endless books that come up with, with dodges and tricks that people can do, how they can foam at the mouth. There's this institution called the Mendicity Society, who come out as maybe the biggest villains in the book, because they're set up literally to disprove all these beggars and their tricks and expose them. They get a doctor to pour acid into a boy's mouth to prove that he's got a tongue. This is a child of about 13 who's claiming not to have a tongue. Okay, in this eventuality, that is correct. These are the very small minority of cases we hear about that people extrapolate these myths from. The way they make him show his tongue, they pour acid in his mouth. And this is the way people were doing things. You begin the book with a really extraordinary scene. Um, it's that of the trial of an 18-year-old girl who's called Mary Ann Donovan. 
And I think that that's a really good um, example of what you're trying to do with this book in uncovering these stories. I wonder if you could share her story with us and why you chose to start the book with it. Marianne Donovan is perfect for this because she is someone who wants her story to be heard. She's Irish. She's one of many, many thousands of Irish migrants to London. She is 18 years old. And on an ordinary day early in the 19th century, she is selling combs on Cornhill in the city of London. She is trying to make a few pence. She is being perfectly respectable. She is doing a perfectly legitimate, useful business, selling things that people might actually need. But she's not doing this from a shop. She's doing it in the street to passers-by. This is a problem for the authorities, and she is almost immediately arrested. She is charged with causing an obstruction. This is the big thing of the 19th century. They hate people gathering a crowd around them. If you're successful on the street, people come and listen to you, and then the traffic has a harder time getting past. And if people want to make money, they're very cross with this. So she is hauled up at a petty session to be tried. And she is tried by the Lord Mayor himself, David Wire, the Lord Mayor of the City of London. Of course, this means this man isn't a professional magistrate who's grown up studying the law. He's a member of a guild. He's a merchant. So he's sort of an amateur at this kind of thing. He's um, a man in his late 50s. He's very well-to-do. He's plagued by various illnesses, and he's fairly grumpy from what we can tell. And she is unlucky enough to be tried by him. And immediately, she answers back. He says, you mustn't do this. She says, well, then what am I supposed to do? Well, tell me, Your Worship, Your Honor, what's a girl to do? Her point is, she can't make money, money any other legitimate way. And he immediately slights her by saying that maybe she um, needs to be careful on the street because she could be up to prostitution. And she said, the whole point, no, he is essentially slandering her name in court. She refuses to have this and she gets sent down for a short jail term. There are journalists in the court. This is the wonderful thing about these, these court trials. We have the official court record. We also have people taking notes in the gallery, scribbling the way. And if we're lucky, these, these cases take off. So people start writing about her case and people start sending her money and they start writing angry letters to, to Parliament, to, to the Times, saying, what are you doing to this uh, poor young woman? She's a legitimate business person, if you like. And so in, instead, they have to mount a, a defense against her. There's a whole smear campaign against an 18-year-old selling combs on Cornhill. It's what I find remarkable. They get the, the superintendent of her old school in East London to come out and say she was never any good. She led all the other children astray. She absconded. She, she, this is a thoroughly disreputable character. She can't defend herself. These are terrible things to be saying. And they refuse to give her the money that people have sent in specifically for her usage because she won't enter a home for abandoned females. She has total command. We have a record of this exchange between between her and the Lord Mayor that goes on for at least a page. It's just wonderful. It just flies off the page because of her eloquence. I think she's wonderful. And she is the spirit, if you like, of all of these other Londoners who dare to answer back and who actually put their voices out there, these voices that we're always told we can't hear. We have to study these things through representation, through the institutions that look at these people, through through the top-down reports of people like Henry Mayhew pretending to interview people, um, putting lots of people together, presenting them through his own words, through loads of um, journalists and investigators who just give their own perspective on things, through moralists, through missionaries writing about people in the street. These days, we can find people in the street talking about themselves in their own voices. It's this explosion in the archive, mostly through um, the ability to read things digitally and search so much at very short speed. That's the thing. And the impression I got from your book about those who kind of found their living on the street was that they had to be pretty ingenious. They had to be pretty savvy as well. Could you give us an idea about some of the employments that you could create for yourself on the street and the challenges involved in them? 
we were talking a minute ago about misconceptions, and there's this very middle-class view we've inherited about um, disapproving of people on the street, being distrustful, being fearful of them. The saddest thing maybe about this misconception is it's not representative of Londoners as a whole. A lot of Londoners in the 19th century, especially working-class Londoners, are very sympathetic, they're very charitable, and they're not in a hurry. So if you find yourself out on the street, there's a lot of goodwill towards you from other people. And this means that there are an awful lot of things you can do. I mean, at the absolute worst, you can become a beggar of one kind or another. And there are people like John James Beezer I mentioned earlier who um, throughout their lives feel too proud to do this. It's also dangerous. Joseph Johnson, who is um, a black ex-sailor in the Merchant Marine, who um, is wounded in both legs, uh, he doesn't feel able to start begging uh, because the beadles in the city of London where he is will come down on him very hard. Also very possibly for him, he hasn't actually lost a leg. And so there's a, there's a strong possibility people would say, well, you're just pretending. So then if you're not going to actually beg, which you might do with a written placard, uh, with with a song that you're singing, with with something in front of you, some signal of that, maybe by putting on a, an old uniform to show that you're a, you're a soldier or sailor. Maybe if you're a woman and you've got a, a small child, um, that child will do a lot of your work for you, both visually and also by screaming out. Um, these, are, these are very important things uh, to the extent to which having a small child is an actual asset. And you have some stories in your book, don't you, of children being taken, being kidnapped for this very purpose? Yes. So in the in the book, I'm trying to tell a biography that goes chronologically through the life of someone on the street um, via lots of different people's lives, which means I start out with birth and infancy. So I wanted to get a sense of what that might be like from the very small child's perspective. Of course, there we can't have the voice of a two-year-old saying that. So we're there we're going through different accounts. But to imagine what it's like to be snatched and taken and put on the street, uh, because we do have the perspective of a couple of people who did that, who were who were arrested for um, taking someone else's child without leave and and using them um, as an aid in begging or ballad singing, and these are remarkable accounts. They sometimes veer almost into farce until the poor person involved gets transported to Australia, for example. But if you want to go a level above this, um, all kinds of performance are open to you. Uh, singing is the easiest thing because it doesn't require anything else. Um, you, there's no real, there's no input of capital, except if you're going to sell songs, because until the middle of the century, people don't busk. No one's going to pay you just for singing. Um, you've got to sell a song itself. And this is a printed object. It's the lyrics on a single sheet. And you need to sing it properly, because how else are people going to learn the tune to this song? Because the notes aren't written down there. That would be far too expensive and no one could read them. So you've got to sing this thing through over and over again, and people will buy it and hum the tune as they go off trying to learn it. So you need a few pence to buy your songs from the printer and then sell it a profit. But otherwise, um, just having your voice, that is that is enough. And you can be very eloquent. You get stand-up comedians. Sometimes you get some of these songs that even have bits of skits of comedy in there. So you can see sort of early stand-up written on the page for you if you don't have the wit to come up with it yourself. Play any instrument. You can dance. Do anything with your body. People love it. There's a shortage of, of great excitement otherwise in, in aspects of people's lives. They, they, they really enjoy this. Or you can sell something. You can sell almost any item, however small, uh, from getting watercress to, to lavender to, to flowers. Uh, flower sellers, this is a thing we understand all too well. We think only of Eliza Doolittle in, in My Fair Lady. That's the tail end of a very great profession for, for centuries. But also, you can scavenge. Uh, people can scrape a few pence together by even picking up the bones of animals in the street. Because the 19th century recycles everything. It's absolutely brilliant. You have this wonderful industry. We think of you read the reports of all of these people doing idle work, being a drain on the exchequer by taking money from industrious trades. You've got all these people out there making a pittance by turning everything useful. You make 
rags from paper and then paper back from rags again. Everything goes round. Night soil, which is, um, as many of the listeners probably know, a, a nice euphemism for um, excretions of one kind or another, is then going to be a very good fertilizer. There are there are sort of big surveys of the geography of London that sort of show the concentric rings of um, fertility of the fields around the city just caused by human and, and horse excrement being used as, as useful fertilizer. And that's just coming off the streets all the time. There's nothing that isn't useful. So if you're on the street, you're probably either brightening someone's day by giving them a bit of culture and entertainment, or you're actually helping the city survive. Uh, you could, and then we have your crossing sweepers, you know, people who are who are just helping those streets keep going. And those crossing sweepers, I'm confused by the economics there. Who is paying them? Passers-by pay them. The state is not that well regulated in this sense. There's There are a couple of MPs in the century who say, you know what, this needs to be a system. I'm going to set them up. We're going to have sweeps going. By the end of the century, this is something that's been taken in hand. But as a crossing sweeper earlier, you rely on the kindness of passers-by who are using your crossing. And this is why it gets very territorial. Uh, Charles Mackey, um, who um, either began life as a slave, certainly his father was a slave in Jamaica, he is known to have spent the vast majority of his incredibly long life sweeping a crossing on Ludgate Hill. Um, there's a monument behind him. Um, he's older than this monument when it's already um, passed down into legend. He's there for sort of 60 years, maybe, sweeping this crossing between the late 18th and the mid-19th century. Um, and he develops a great relationship with the Waithman family who live around the corner, um, who are always giving him giving him a little bit of money. And he ends up apparently leaving all of his earnings to the daughter of that family. Some people say it's £7,000, but this is maybe one of the myths of the, the rich beggars. But you need to have those regulars who will actually be relied upon to tip you on a regular basis to, to sustain you. And if they're paying you a halfpenny, you know, people are like, unlikely to have a coin smaller than a halfpenny if they're, if they're well-to-do, or maybe even a penny. Those quickly stack up because a shilling a day is a decent going for anyone working on the street. Um, yes, you're not going to be given a salary to sweep a crossing. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. How far that really existed is unclear. Uh, it's it's something that people like to say, like to pretend they have this secret knowledge of how people speak on the streets, and probably people on the streets are talking in real words. You have lots of slangs like "king's mots" is a word for children that you've borrowed to beg with, as we were mentioning earlier. These sorts of things they may have existed. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. You've mentioned the ballad singers and culture, and I know that you specialise in, in popular songs of this time, but you also specialise in language and language that would have been spoken um, on the streets. What kind of language would we hear? I mean, if me and you did go in our time machine, would we be able to understand what people were saying? You'd hear a lot of languages, for a start. Uh, this is a very cosmopolitan city, London. For much of this century, more people living in the city are born outside it than within it. And that's a lot of migration um, from other parts of England and Britain. 
at a time when, before the railways have taken over, you still got a lot of variation in, in regional accents. And there are stereotypes that find their way into the theatre and into the songs of the comic Yorkshireman as much as the comic Irishman. These people who have these un, un, incomprehensible, thick country burrs from the southwest. We still have all of these things. We still know what these these imitation accents sound like. And then people from all over the world, from uh, what we would now think of as the Commonwealth, but literally everywhere. That mendicity society I mentioned earlier keeps a record of where they find beggars from, and it adds up to just about anywhere you could conceive of in the globe, and people are speaking all kinds of languages. Then you have the vocabulary. Now, a lot of people are speaking uh, a lot of nautical language. A lot of the expressions that we have today come from come from the sea. And London is a port city. It's full of sailors. So uh, from everything from, you know, you're my mainstay coming from uh, just a great big rope that keeps a mast up to, to oh, by and large, because if a ship sails well, by and large, um, it does so well close to the wind and away from the wind. So it's sort of, you know, good both ways. These things that now are just idiomatic part of the language uh, sort of um, slang new new sayings in their day. The main thing I suspect you're getting at is flash language. And flash language, this is a real conundrum because again, we come up against that question of misconception. There are wonderful books from about the 1820s onwards that purport to record how people in the street talk. And it's all that Cockney stuff. It's it's W's for V's. It, you know, it's your full-on Dick Van Dyke, Mary Poppins kind of stuff. And people reversing words. So the when Esculop or Eculop are the new police because you you, you <laughs> reverse the letters in a word. This is meant to be backslang. Um, you have all uh, you could do it with with any word, frankly. And I'm not quite limber enough to go it, but that's one I remember. When Eculop, watch out for them. Uh, how far that really existed is unclear. Uh, it's it's something that people like to say, like to pretend they have this secret knowledge of how people speak on the streets, and probably people on the streets are talking in real words. You have lots of slangs like "king's mots" is a word for children that you've borrowed to beg with, as we were mentioning earlier. These sorts of things they may have existed. The great thing is, a lot of people in the street are maybe the first person in their family ever to have any kind of education, maybe from a bit of Sunday schooling, schooling, maybe as an autodidact reading reading a ballad. And it's that first encounter with literacy. People get very excited by words and language. And that's where I think that backslang may be a real thing, because we do have a record of one clerk getting very excited and thinking this is far funnier than it really is. But it's just that sheer delight in having the power to manipulate written language and reverse the, the spelling of a word and it's still to make sense to you. You can see people delighting in that if that's new to them. It's the sort of thing a child would do today. Yeah. We've spoken a lot about people working in the streets, but were these people also sleeping in the streets? Were they homeless? This is a, a big mix. Are there a f I did wonder when starting to write this book, was it effectively going to be a history of rough sleepers and of homelessness? And very largely not. There are always, of course, people homeless on the streets of London. Uh, there are many in their thousands. Today, they were spoken about a lot more in the 19th century approximately as visible. This was a major problem, especially in the years after Waterloo, uh, which is when the Mendicity Society was set up precisely because they were seen as this explosion in begging as many, many thousands of sailors and soldiers were laid off. And there was economic depression from the reopening of trade across Europe. Um, strangely, this, this sent crises and harvests flying all over the place. So there are a lot of people with nowhere to be. But on the other hand, a bed for the night is one of the cheapest things in the economy of the street at this time. 
you have all of these, I mean, the word slum is coined for seven dials, now a very nice bit of Covent Garden. But the, the centre of London in this period, in the 1820s, you start getting this idea of the slum, all of these courts, these great big buildings that were actually quite posh in the 17th century. Now people are sleeping five or six families to a room sometimes. People on floors are a bit of hay as well as beds. There are small boys um, in the book speaking to interviewers, boys like Billy Tag, um, who are five or six. They get come to their own arrangements. So there's a there's a baker or a butcher who has a cart that they trundle around. Well, I'll, well, you know, I'll give you a tiny bit of my money and I will sleep in your cart. There are people who stay on old barges, that sort of thing. You know, haylofts are a great place to stay warm. And um, underneath the arches of bridges, people will sleep here. We have reports, but these are mostly children. These are mostly boys who are orphaned or who've run away. Um, and sometimes they will sleep together. They'll huddle together in large groups for obvious reasons. But as soon as you're making any money and you're big enough to really do business with anyone, you can get a room for a night for a penny. Your rent costs less than your food. It's it's a really it's a really different flip in in the economics of things to how we would see it today. I mean, look at London today and the the inability being priced out of anywhere reasonable to live if you're not in social housing or commuting for an hour every day. No, no, beds are cheap. Uh, just the standard of them is disgraceful. You've alluded to a couple of times um, throughout our conversation, children and young people and their their prevalence really on the streets, which I think is one of the elements that seems most alien to us today. Can you tell us a bit about what it would have been like to grow up in this environment? Would it have been like Oliver Twist? Oliver Twist or Dodgers on on CBBC at the at the moment. This is this is the inescapable shadow. And I mentioned John James Beezer earlier, who is the most wonderfully eloquent recorder of his life on the street. Because later in life, John James Beezer becomes a Chartist rebel, and he has a reason to write down his record of his of his life. And he has a moment in his childhood where he has a an Oliver Twistian moment where he springs up against his employer because he's being mean about his mother, and he leaps at this far larger man and fights him. And you can't help but be reminded of that bit earlier in Oliver Twist, where he goes at Noah Claypole, the scene happens many years before Oliver Twist comes out. But Beezer is writing afterwards, so it's debatable just how closely it happened to to his account. However, in general, boys being put together in in gangs um, by evil overlords with whatever anti-Semitic elements you want to throw in there, not so much, I don't think. There is one sensational scandal where a boy is is a witness and on trial because there is one policeman who has been training up a gang of thieves. This did happen once, as far as we strongly know. And, and it is that very much sort of Fagin and his gang moment with the extra twist of this is a policeman who's who's operating these these children. But on the whole, these children are, are self-employed. They're, they're entrepreneurial in that sense. They're striking out upon their own. Boys seem to have a lot more freedom and latitude than girls, of course. And this is the big difference. Children on the street everywhere, they're all being exploited to one extent or another. The boys in particular are being run off their feet, doing errands, carrying things far too heavy for them, going up chimneys until that's banned, and then they're sent out of London to do it elsewhere. But the girls have it hardest once they reach puberty. As small children, they're effectively treated the same as the boys. They dress the same. They look the same. It's an equal playing field. But as soon as they get to 12 or 13, suddenly people are looking at them in a different way. And that's not just people who are actually looking at them with um, with pernicious intent. This is um, moralists, missionaries, um, do-gooders in a term very much coined in the day who are worrying about these people, even if they're perfectly safe, saying, no, they should not be out there as a temptation. That leads me on to something I wanted to ask you about, which was the idea about women in the streets and what that meant 
at the time. If I had a single disappointment with this book, which I didn't know if I'd be able to write in the first place, because could I assemble enough decent first-hand material that wasn't filtered through someone else's representation to really be able to say these are the first-hand voices. The biggest disappointment is how much harder it is to get that proper first-hand testimony of women in the street unless they've been arrested and they're in a courtroom. Because women do not write memoirs of this sort of thing in this period, except for a tiny handful of exceptions who have had a religious conversion and feel very strongly that they need to tell the world about it. And there are very few of those who have a life in the street that one has come across. So the problem with, with this is you have to find those other ways of then talking about them. But the thing is, whether a woman is, is young or old, whether they are deemed within the eyes of the society at the time to be conventionally attractive or unattractive, there is no way of getting out of this, this stare. In a way, the safest thing to be is, is a, a, a mother in an apron with half a dozen children around you. And then this is, you're seen very much in that role as, as mother, because that's something people can conceive of more easily. But as a single woman there, or as a woman as part of a group, that label of sex is inescapable. And it doesn't even matter what clothes you wear, in a way. This is very, and you don't have that much choice over how you dress, because you take what's available to you in a pawn shop. And a lot of people who are genuinely plying traders as prostitutes also have to dress in what they can get. And sometimes, so it's very hard to tell people about, and you get these questions in people's minds. Is that person soliciting? Are they just going about their ordinary everyday business? Kato Cagney is a milkmaid in the middle of the century. She's an incredibly strong milkmaid. She's working sort of 18, 19 hour days carrying pails of milk around the entirety of London. She will take no nonsense. She can look out for herself and she's been doing this for decades without a holiday. She is a supremely capable street worker. And there's this diarist called Arthur Munby who has a predilection, shall we say, for um, larger women with, with big hands. And he has no compunction because he is a well-to-do gent with just stopping people in the street and talking to them. This is fine for him. It's not fine if you're Kato Cagney, the milkmaid, because to be stopped by a man and just pass the time of day with him, if you're in public and you're being seen, this is dangerous to her reputation. There's nothing you could do about this. You can't just ignore him and brush past. He's a gentleman. There's some idea of deference, and he might give you some money. But you end up with this scenario, and he records this in his diary. She has to turn and face away from him. He has to face away from her and carry on a conversation almost back to back to respect propriety. It's just horrendous. Many of the people that you look at in the book, they're, they're weighing up basically a life on the street versus a life in an institution. Can you tell us a bit about that dilemma? There are maybe revisionist historians who really want to make the claim that the workhouses weren't that bad. And there is potentially some justice in this, because again, we have this view of life in an institution that is filtered largely through Dickens, but we like to think of these places as full of um, sadistic overseers, thrashing children, and people working endless days of backbreaking labor. And in the cases that we have, this is actually the case, because people record those sorts of things rather than a more humdrum existence. There are many institutions that seem to succeed, often for taking in young women and reforming them, so as to get an endless supply of domestic servants going about. And what they do, they do give people an education, uh, they give um, very much a religious education going on, but there are sacrifices. There are there are great scandals, there are great abuses that go on in these things and they get picked out. But I think for most people, that life is a safer existence. You'll probably come up with some repressive strain injury over time if you're, if you're doing some of the labor in there, but the risks on the street are probably just as great to your physical health. The one thing is that sense of independence. And whatever the fact of life in an institution might be like, it is inescapable that people on the street valued their freedom and their liberty. 
this is a romantic ideal, and it would be very easy to think, oh no, we we who are comfortable can say, oh, the life of a vagabond, gay and free. And there are songs about that at the time. There are horrendous songs about, uh, I am a ballad singer, may- merrily, gaily, tripping my way. I get to lay my head wherever I want to. There are all these jokes about beggars. And uh, th- this song that's centuries old about how a beggar's life is the best because you can just knock off wherever you like and and do as you wish. And so you'd think that actually... In no way would that be the sentiment shared by people in the street. But as soon as it comes to that moment where they have the choice, time and again you find people choosing freedom and hardship and uncertainty over that stability. If people go into the workhouse, they very often want to get out again as soon as possible, and they're afraid they won't be able to do that. And it's that sense of having any mastery over your own life and own existence. It really matters. And I guess it especially matters when people get older. As you said in your book, you essentially look at the seven ages of man on the streets of of London at this time. And you end with a look at older people, the elderly. What was it like to grow old in this society? Was it quite a a cruel, unforgiving time? It is a cruel and unforgiving time to to grow elderly. Life on the street is not isolated. One is not alone. I think we overstate the case to which you think about these people who are abandoned and have no support networks. You think of a lot of these people may be orphans, for example. Yes, very often true. Very often single. Yes, there are no guilds for the trades that these people are doing. They're not organized in, in labor in those terms. They, they're they not paying into a, a union to, to fall back on. But there are support networks of the streets. People congregate in pubs. People look out for each other. They know who's in their neighborhood. London is very much a city still made up of neighborhoods in this period that are connected. And people move between them, but people know their own area. Maybe it's based on the parish. And there are people who look out for each other. You will have your um, community based on your ethnicity, very possibly, whether that's Irish, whether that's Afro-Caribbean, whether that's Jewish, whether that's uh, Malay, a big term at the time. But there are people there to take care of you. However, there are limits to what that care can do because people have very little money for themselves, let alone for other people. So emotionally, I think if you're old in the street, it's not much of a problem because there is a bit of respect that comes with that. Um, If you're forced to beg, I think you have an an easy time of it because people tend to be quite good to to the elderly in this respect. It's simply as soon as you get ill, the problem is the problem is your healthcare, and the problem is the cold, the perishing cold of this sort of thing. And you have a welfare system uh, run on a parish basis that is not fit for purpose because it is not preventative, it is curative, and it is ad hoc, and it is temporary. So if you are in very great distress, you may be visited and someone may give you enough to cover your immediate problem. No one will ever set you up properly or prevent this happening in the future and you will not be advanced loans in any way to to recoup. And by the time you can no longer work, these things are are not very helpful if you have no family um, who are younger than you to support you. So these are problems, and we see see terrible things happening to these people. Uh, The the book, uh, the chapter on the elderly, ends with Billy Waters, whom we see earlier at the high point of his professional career. He's the most wonderful fiddler and dancer, despite genuinely only having one leg. Uh, and he is another black sailor. He was actually in the Navy, born in New York, lost a leg on HMS Ganymede in 1812, and is then, um, for a decade, he is very famous around the streets of London for his for his performances, which must have been sensational. But by the time he is very old, he is forced finally to go into the workhouse because he has no other choice, because he has nothing to fall back on. And he dies in a workhouse, and he's buried in an unmarked grave, almost certainly in 
a different workhouse's cemetery in St Pancras because St Giles is shipping its bodies out by then. And then a few years later, that whole cemetery is dug up to make room for the railway. And so not only do we not know where he was buried, but his bones were then probably disinterred and jumbled up again and put back again. And this is just representative of how it goes. And from the 1830s onwards, if you're elderly and dying and going into the workhouse, you're also scared that people are going to, the resurrection men are going to come and dig up your corpse and sell it to a doctor as well. It's a it's a very grim ending, especially if I might just add another point there, that it seems, if I can generalize, people have less faith on the street. People have less formal religious education and people are very anti-Sabbatarian. People want to work on the Sunday. People are very resentful of missionaries. People don't have Bible study and they are deeply skeptical that someone compassionate is looking out for them for reasons that you could easily understand. So um, hope is in short supply. You've spent years, I presume, researching this book, um, uncovering these voices of the people who lived on the streets. And I wonder if there are any that really stuck with you. Perhaps when you're walking around the streets of London now, you can't help but think about. There are maybe two stories from this book that resonate with me more strongly than any other, and they both involve a couple. And this is perhaps why, because they have so much emotion in them and so much love and just the beauty of two people against a system that means them nothing but harm somehow trying to survive. And one is a story that takes place in 1851. Um, it's the most unlikely union of the time between a woman known only as Eliza P, because she's a fallen genteel lady from the southwest of England, and her family take a lot of care to make sure the surname is kept out of the papers. And Eliza P has gone thoroughly to the bad. She is a fallen woman by the standards of the time, and she's selling ballads in the street. And then there is a man called Muhammad Abraham, who is um, known as a Malay. So he is from the Indian Ocean somewhere originally. And uh, he has come to England as a sailor, gets to Liverpool, and is struck down by illness and loses his sight in the 1840s, manages to make his way to London, where he begs with a dog, the help of a dog, for many years successfully on his own. Now, one fateful night, these two people come together. He is out on the street looking for some um, meat for his dog, and he manages to lose his way, and she is the person who who finds his way, finds him some some meat, and he invites her back for a cup of tea uh, late in the evening. Then it's too late. She has to stay there. And I don't want to speculate on the, the nature of their relationship. Uh, it may have been romantic. It may not. They certainly seem to have shared a bed. But above all, these are two people who then start looking out for each other. So every day she leads him out um, to his to his baking place and she goes off singing because they won't do this together. They don't do complimentary things. Um, and this carries on for months. They even start living in a better room and, and their life is going incredibly well until people start interfering because uh, this is a mixed race relationship and this is inconceivable. And so they, they spring upon them, they ambush them. There's a trumped up charge of of begging where you shouldn't be. Um, as as a legitimate blind ex-sailor, he has every reason to be to be begging here. But it transpires over the length of this court case that the charge they're on is not the charge that is going to do them in. And they have this very long battle with the authorities to to stay together. And there are some very beautiful moments in it, and it's it's kind of harrowing. That was Oscar Jensen. His book Vagabonds, Life on the Streets of 19th Century London, is available now, published by Duckworth. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Mm-hmm.